Hello and welcome to Motorsport Week's F1 podcast series, Motorsport Speak, the show where we discuss about the latest that's happening in the world of Formula One. Tom Kenshaw host with Will Knight, Ed Spencer and LA Wilshaw. We review the United States Grand Prix in Austin where Max Verstappen claimed his eighth win of the season and extending his championship margin over rival Lewis Hamilton to 12 points. Sergio Perez's top three finish for the second race in a row helped Red Bull close in on Mercedes in the Constructors' title. Hello, Will. Hello, Ed. Hello, LA. How are we? Um, 17 rounds down, five to go. We've got a week's break before the five in six weekends of racing. And it's really intensifying now, Ed, with these races coming in thick and fast. Now, this is it. It's do or die time for both Red Bull and Mercedes. And of course, throw in McLaren in the battle for third in the Constructors. We are now finally approaching the business end of the championship. And after a fantastic race in Austin, it's going to be a feisty five or five races. And it seems to me that Max Verstappen has the momentum on his side going into Mexico after a brilliant drive in Austin, where we all expected that Lewis Hamilton would pass him on the fresher rubber. But Verstappen kept his cool, kept his calm and got the job done and won a fantastic uh, United States Grand Prix. And of course, we have the battles preferred between McLaren and Ferrari that got very tasty uh, last this weekend at Austin. Last weekend at Austin, I should say. And also the fights lowered down the pack as the other as the lower teams scrap for that last little bit of prize money. So we are all set for a thrilling final five races. We certainly say, Will, I'm sure you'd be inclined to agree with what Ed has said there. Um, I think Austin was very much about race strategy. We anticipated it was going to be a two-stop race, considering how abrasive the circuit of the Americas racetrack is and given how bumpy it is. And... Red Bull very much read into Mercedes's strategy very, very well. And Max Verstappen, you have to say, that was one of the drives of the season where he absolutely defended for his life. A bit like what Hamilton did in Bahrain. I think Red Bull have begun to understand Mercedes' key tactic here. They've done it twice before in Hungary in 2019 and then Spain uh, 2021, where Verstappen pitted, uh, pitted early. Uh, and then Hamilton took another pit stop uh, compared to him and uh, chased him down. They knew that something was going to be happening like that. So they thought, why don't we use this to our advantage? Why don't we plan our strategy as if we know Hamilton's going to try that? That's exactly what they did. Paid off for them. And they've practically got a lead in this championship, which arguably many could say puts them favourably uh, at the head of the, the championship race. Personally, in my opinion, I think is advantage Red Bull. I've made that very clear uh, from everything I've said about the uh, the final five races in the US Grand Prix. It is advantage Red Bull. Mercedes are on the back foot here. Uh, and I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that this season continues swaying back and forth between the two and we end up with a, a final lap showdown in Abu Dhabi. Absolutely. LA, looking at the stats during the course of the season, Max Verstappen has led 504 laps, racing laps that is. That's more than 50% of all the racing laps we've had this year, which is very close to the records of what Vettel, Hamilton and Schumacher have done in previous years. Do you feel with the fact that Max has won eight out of the 17 races this year, is this very much his title to lose now? Because it's still leaving 12 points. So by the end of the next race, the tables could turn and Lewis could have a 14 point lead. 
Yeah, I'm not sure it's his to lose. Uh, I don't think he's got that great uh, an advantage. Um, you know, it's it's just been going between the two for the entire season, which is very exciting for everybody at home, you know, watching. Um, I do feel that uh, Red Bull's focus very much went on to Mercedes this weekend. Normally they've denied that they they look at Mercedes, you know, they they, they don't think about what they're doing they just have their own race they just do their own race uh they've maintained that the entire season up until this weekend and that actually got got uh sort of proven when even max over the radio uh said uh, you know about the sort of undercut and then perez would come into play and that was then very much sort of school school ground games uh coming out for for me you know you heard it straight away on the radio so they were very much focused on Mercedes this weekend and a little bit like what football teams tend to do before they go into a match you know they'll all sit and watch uh, uh, matches of, of the team they're opposing that particular weekend they'll individually watch you know what what each player can do um, and, and how they can attack how they can form their strategy to win that match and to me that's what um, Red Bull did this weekend they've looked back um, and they have definitely seen what Mercedes have done, what they've been doing, um, and very much focused on winning that race. And they, I think they were just a little bit lucky in the end, to be fair, you know, because Lewis was catching. And um, I think he can gain sort of that extra second per lap at, at a track like Austin. Uh, it's not his home Grand Prix by any means, but it's a Grand Prix that he loves and that he's won many times. And, and I do feel that there's a, a slight edge to a driver when they feel at home and when they feel like they, they command a track. So, um, yeah, I do think they were a little bit lucky at the very end and Lewis was maybe unlucky. And that's how some championships are won. They're won on, on luck sometimes. Um, but I don't think it's, I, I don't know. It's just exciting as a fan, isn't it? just to, to watch this unfold. But I definitely think that Max, with all those percentages and stats that you've just given, uh, does have this championship in his hand. You know, it's, it, it's, it's for sure. It's looking like it's his way, isn't it? Which is, which is interesting. It's very interesting indeed. And LA touched on the fact that when Lewis closed in, Ed, um, obviously he was unlucky not to, um, to get by him. But I think part of that was the fact that the turbulent air destroyed the front tyres of his and it destroyed the the advantage he had on those tyres compared to what Max did. Because if you remember, Max had eight laps uh, older tyres than Lewis. Yeah, I think there was a case of turbulent air, but Mercedes was struggling throughout the race uh, with the tyres. They didn't have a particularly good first stint on the mediums. And I think the turbulent air probably didn't help those tyres and particularly with the hot temperatures that we've had we had this weekend at Austin, I think was very detrimental to Hamilton being narrowly defeated. But I also don't think we underestimate how good of a drive Stappen did at Austin. I think we need to look at how, you know, he, he had eight laps older, he had eight laps older tyres. Uh, Hamilton was on fresh ones, but Max kept his cool, kept, kept his head down, didn't make a mistake and that's what him the race not because Mercedes uh, got in the turbulent air that may have helped uh, Red Bull but Verstappen used his initiative and you know won him the that won him the race so I think it was just a combination of things that didn't work for Mercedes I think they were on the back foot from Saturday onwards when Perez finally turned on the taps uh, in FP3 and in qualifying as we saw the Red Bull had the better package so that's you know why Mercedes 
lost through the fact that Red Bull just were waiting their t- were biding their time and then pushed. And in the race, we found that that out to you know Verstappen's expect Verstappen's advantage. Well, Ed mentioned about Perez. I mean, this was a brilliant weekend for him. I mean, he was quick all weekend. I mean, it was by no means any fluke. I mean, he was topping. I think he topped FP2 and FP3, I think he topped, but that was because of the fact that Verstappen and Hamilton's lap times in FP3 ended up being deleted for track limits. But nevertheless, people thought that Perez for a moment was going to end up all of a sudden on pole position, but he just had no grip left on the um, on the last run. I think it's his best weekend of the season, personally. I think Perez did a really good job. And like it was mentioned after the... Uh after the race itself, Perez, before the Mexican Grand Prix, his home race was Texas. It was the closest race to Mexico, where he was born, and the place he considers his home. And in my opinion, that very obviously had some form of psychological effect. And the fact that he did it all without his water bottle working for half the race and the searing heat of Texas just shows that when Perez is on his day, when it's his day, he really is an impressive driver. And obviously... He wasn't able to keep pace with Max and Lewis, but at the same time, no one expects him to keep pace with, with Hamilton and Verstappen at the minute because they are just on another level compared to the other drivers. So Red Bull needed him to back up Verstappen to influence Hamilton's strategy. And in the opening stint, that medium tyre stint, which, uh, which Ed just mentioned, Perez was there. Verstappen said, use Perez to, uh, to influence Hamilton's strategy and to make sure he can't go on. And they did that. And it just shows why Mercedes have been able to outflank Verstappen in some races this year. Red Bull have turned the tides and they're using that to their advantage. And it shows LA that how much of a lesson Red Bull have learned in the past when it comes to a driver coming in for fresher tyres. I mean, we saw it in Hungary two years ago. We saw it in Spain early this year where Lewis was able to come in for an extra change of tyres able to eat up the gap that Verstappen had on track and was able to get past him. But I think Red Bull learned this time, I don't know whether it's circuit characteristics or the fact that Verstappen just managed his tyres brilliantly on the last stint, but it just shows how much nerve Verstappen has over Lewis. And I want to mention Perez again, because he was absolutely brilliant over the course of the weekend. And the races prior, Red Bull were losing ground on Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship. But with Perez taking back-to-back podiums, it's helped Red Bull gain back the advantage that Mercedes had built up. Yeah, it kind of looked on Friday like Mercedes would do better. Uh, you know, we, we sort of were noting the rear suspension moving up and down and what whatever they're doing with that at the moment. Um, and, and they did look to to be utilising that very well. Um, but obviously that that had a big turnaround. Um, you know, I think with, with uh, Cota, <laughs> that turn one, you know, it, it, there's always an argument of whoever starts in pole, are they really on the correct side of the track? Because whoever's in P2 usually gets that corner first or can get that corner first. And that could have been a, a thought in the strategy. You know, the strategists are very clever people um, and they consider all of this, they factor in. It did appear as though Perez gave way to Max on that first corner, which obviously then had an influence as well on the result, if that if that's the case. Uh, you know, if he didn't go for P1 himself when he perhaps could have done, because obviously Max left the circuit. Um, and so, you know, all that comes into play too. You have to consider that. We don't know what goes on behind the scenes. We just observe it and witness it ourselves on TV. 
Um, but Perez is an incredible driver. He always has been. And um, I think in a different car and a different team, he may very well have had a very different Formula One career. And, you know, he, he went to show that even through all his years at um, Force India and Racing Point. And now, you know, obviously at Red Bull, he's coming into play very nicely. And, and however amazing Max is, and Max is, he's exceptional. He's one of those drivers that is exceptional and will win multiple world championships. Um, but I'd like to think that Perez has got one in him at least at some point, you know, a little bit like um, drivers that other teams may have done with Rosberg and Lewis. And, um, you know, I think people maybe hope Bottas might have got one in the bag at some point. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's not it's not too bad having a, a teammate like Perez, if you're Max anyway because he's very much, a, he is a team player. He always has been. He knows how to play the team game. And uh, I'd, I'd be very proud if he was my teammate and, and also if I was Christian Horner right now. Yeah, and of course, Sergio Perez has um, been teammates with quite a number of drivers. I mean, he was initially teammates with Kamui Kobayashi during his first two years in Formula 1 with Sauber. Then, of course, he was alongside Jensen Button at McLaren. And he's been teammates with the likes of Nico Hulkenberg, Esteban Ocon, Lance Stroll and... Uh, and uh, now uh, Max Verstappen. So he's come up with some, uh, you know, he's been teammates with a lot of great drivers um, over the years, good and great drivers. Um, but yeah, I mean, Perez, you know, certainly has earned the right to be alongside Max for a second year um, at Red Bull, which is uh, the first time since the days of Verstappen and Ricardo in terms of continuing the continuity of the same two drivers in consecutive years. But in terms of the race result then for Austin, um, Max Verstappen won for the eighth time this season, the 18th of his career. He won out by 1.3 seconds over Lewis Hamilton, who finished second and got the point for the fastest lap. Sergio Perez on the podium for the second race in the row for Red Bull in third, and then Charles Leclerc in fourth for Ferrari. It was a good result for him. Gianni Ricciardo in a fine fifth for McLaren, and then Valtteri Bottas in sixth place for Mercedes. And it's Carlos Sainz seventh, and Lando Norris in eighth and the last driver on the lead lap. Yuki Tsunoda in a well-deserved ninth. He had a good race, actually, did um, the Japanese driver, and it's Sebastian Vettel who finished 10th. I think that's the, only the second time in the last nine races, I believe, uh, that Vettel has scored points. Antonio Giovinazzi outside the points in 11th, Lance Stroll 12th, Aston Martin, Kimi Raikkonen 13th off that spin in the closing stages. George Russell in 14th ahead of his teammate Nicholas Latifi. Mick Schumacher was 16th ahead of teammate Nikita Mazepin in 17th position. Fernando Alonso, rear wing failure, makes it his first retirement since the opening race of the season in Bahrain. Esteban Ocon also out with mechanical problems and Pierre Gasly stopping in the pits with suspension trouble. Remember, he suffered a sensor issue on the grid, so I don't know if that had anything to do with that as well. Um, Will, looking at those results there, I mean, when you look at it, it's pretty much like a sort of a normal traditional result where you've got the top four teams occupying the top eight places in the race result. Yeah, um, that's exactly what it is. It's at the front of the grid. It was a bog standard race. Uh, or I, you say standard. Um, it was a fantastic fight between both both uh, Ferrari, McLaren, the Red Bull, and Mercedes. But at the end of the day, it's what we've come to expect in Formula One, and arguably the two uh, the two stories of the season: the fight for third and the fight for first. Once again, taking uh, taking the high point in this race. My opinion on the best fight we've seen. Uh, so, uh, one of the best fights we saw this weekend was um, Alonso versus Giovinazzi, something I never thought I'd actually be saying this season, that the two of them provided one of the best battles. So uh, it's really good to see that the midfield are getting some more action, especially with the likes of uh, Vettel and Russell coming back through the, the pack after their engine penalties. But 
it's it's been the story of the season and I think it's going to be what we're focusing on for the next five races is these two fights at the top of the championship. Mm-hmm. Ed, Will mentioned the Alonso Givenetsa scrap, but what about the Alonso Raikkonen scrap? I think it's a long time since we've seen that. Yeah, it definitely gave me memories of 2012, 2013 when these two were dueling it out in Lotus and Ferrari. Um, I thought it was a very good little scrap, although unfortunately Alonso came out second best because of the fact that Raikkonen gave him a just a little bit of a squeeze and they make contact. But overall, it was a very wild race for Alonso. He was making his way through the pack, but he got stuck between the two Alfa Romeos after he dispatched of Raikkonen. He tried twice on Giovinazzi, and it was almost a bit of a hokey-cokey moment when Giovinazzi and Alonso were switching back the positions uh, through their own various track limits antics. Um, but it was, a, it was a weird day for Alonso, but I think they can... I think Raikkonen can be very happy with his performance, considering that Alfa Romeo were back in the points until he made that very uncharacteristic error, uh, just with a few laps to go, which handed Sebastian Vettel a point. But yeah, it was a a tasty little scrap, no hard, no holds barred, nothing wrong with it, just pure racing, which is what we all pay, which is what we all come to see every weekend. Linking to the Alonso Giovinazzi scrap. Um, LA. Uh, track limits were once again a talking point. It's been some time um, since track limits were um, a talking point um, during the course of the season. I mean, we were talking about it, in, I think, in Bahrain a little bit. Um, I think maybe Imola a little bit as well. But Austin was most certainly one of it because I think multiple corners. I think there's a little bit of a, a little bit of confusion because some track limits are defined by certain corners where if you go over the white line, it's your lap time deleted, or if you go over the red and white curb, it's your lap time deleted. There needs to be some clarification on this, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen in every race. So, you know, I don't think it's a major issue and a major deal at this moment in time, but it was a little bit confusing, um, even for, you know, us people that have watched racing for many, many years. I, I felt of it all just being thrown in. I just think it's the nature of the circuit, to be to be perfectly honest, and it's not going to happen in every race. Um, but I can imagine for newer fans, you know, for people that are, are tuning in for the first time this year or, you know, even at the, even at the circuit, because things are a little bit more difficult to follow when you're at the circuit you know you're trying to listen to the comms coming over PA systems you're trying to watch the screen you can't always see the names if you're a bit too far away so there was probably a little bit of confusion thrown in with all this with all the track limits as well uh, for people that were live viewing you know um, but um, it's I don't know it, it, it kind of added I felt felt it added this particular race to a bit of the excitement because it was uh, pretty good fun to, to watch them have to switch around and give a place back and you know and, and even the signs with Ricardo and Norris you know at the beginning and, uh, he should have given it to Norris and he'd give it to Ricardo and I don't actually think he gave it to him I think the Ricardo earned that position all by himself <laughs> I, I didn't really see signs pulling over very much um, but he sort of claimed that he'd given it to Ricardo at the beginning and um, that didn't quite work out did it so uh, for me it sort of added because I could just about just about follow what was going on but for the other there were people people probably at the circuit that maybe didn't one thing one thing I would like to say is I'd like them to explain why those corners are going to say are going to have your lap removed I'd like to know why that corner you know if you go over the white line lap deleted but if you go over the white line on another corner it's fine 
I'd just like to see a little bit of a clarification, understanding, and also some consistency with the track limits. Because yes, they are a necessary evil, but at times the tiniest little error is punished. Is punished as the same as a driver going off into the other into the next city. So something needs to be done about that. Yeah, I think it's definitely the the gain. Obviously, that's that's why there are track limits. It is about the gain, but it's possibly also about maybe the if you use a certain corner or turn to your advantage or a line, it could perhaps have some kind of safety issue or problem as well. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the thing, like sometimes when you watch, you know, people do video gaming on the F1 game and stuff, like every corner, like literally anywhere on the circuit, if you put all four wheels over the white line, sometimes it gives you a track limits warning when it shouldn't really give you so, but that's just the algorithm of the game itself. So in a video game, it's different. When you, whereas you watch it in real life, is it, is, can they just not put it like, put sensors on every corner that detects whether a driver has exceeded track limits or not? That's my, that's my only perception of it. I mean, is it that hard to really put sensors there to confirm that a driver has exceeded track limits? I don't, I, I don't, I don't see the problem with that idea. I think, you know, they put a camera in the curb, so why not put sensors in? Simple. And then, you can, the teams can tell the drivers, okay, you go over this line here, you go over this line here, you're going to get your lap time deleted or you're going to get a black and white flag. It's, it's a simple innovation, which I think Formula One will introduce in maybe two, three, four, five years, depending on how much the talking point track limits remain in the next with the next generation of cars. Let's run down on the championship standings then after the 17th round of 22 in Formula 1 2021. Max Verstappen has a 12-point lead. He's been able to extend that by six points. He's now on 287.5 to Lewis Hamilton's 275.5. Valtteri Bottas in third place on 185. He's 35 clear of Sergio Perez in fourth on 115. It's Lando Norris down to fifth place now on 149, just a point behind Checo. Charles Leclerc is in sixth on 128. He moved back in front of Carlos Sainz, who's down to seventh on 122 and a half. Daniel Ricciardo in eighth on 105. So he's the eighth driver of the season to break the 100 point barrier. Pierre Gasly in ninth, another race without points, unfortunately for him. That's only one point to finish in the last four. He remains on 74 points. Fernando Alonso in 10th on 58. Esteban Ocon, another race without points, unfortunately for him. That's his third non-finish of the year. He remains on 46. Sebastian Vettel is in 12th on 36. He picked up a point at the weekend. Lance Stroll, 13th on 26. And it's Yuki Snowder in 14th on 20. George Russell in 15th on 16. There's Nicholas Tsipi in 16th on 7. Kimi Raikkonen in 17th with 6. And Tony Giovinazzi in 18th with 1, leaving Mick Schumacher, Robbie Kubica and Nikita Mazepin yet to get off the mark. In the Constructors' Championship, Red Bull have closed in on Mercedes. The gap at the moment now is 23 points. Mercedes have 460.5 to Red Bull's 437.5. McLaren are in third on 254, only 3.5 points clear of Ferrari. The gap did come down slightly, but McLaren are still ahead. McLaren have 254 to Ferrari's 250.5. Alpine are in fifth on 104. Their gap over sixth place Alvatari has been reduced slightly to 10 points. Alvatari are on 94. Aston Martin are in seventh on 62. Williams in eighth on 23. Alfa Romeo in ninth on seven. Haas are still yet to score a point this season. The championship, well, I mean, with Red Bull's good haul of points once again, you know, getting 40 out of a possible 44 on a race weekend to LA. 
you know, with Perez's fine form and his home race coming up next in a couple of weeks, you have to say that could be a weekend where Red Bull gain every point that they could get. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they'll maximise it. Um, and, and, you know, there's supposed to be some circuits that suit certain cars. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it is openly discussed. But this season, I don't necessarily think that's been the case. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously this weekend was supposed to be Mercedes circuit and, and it wasn't. Um, so that can switch around. You know, things change. These cars are changing. These tracks are evolving. But I think that obviously Checo is going to have that massive home advantage anyway, uh, being in Mexico. And it's such a wonderful race being back home as well, you know, after the break that, that they've had to have. Um, and I, I just think it's I think it's Checo's race uh, next race. I really do. I think he'll. He's got the car under him and he's got a, a very good car this season and he'll have the advantage. But, you know, it'll just all be points for, for Red Bull, for, you know, the team, really. Uh, they're just all about the championship. You know, that's where the, the um, pit stop garage is going to be. That's where the points are. That's where the prizes are and the prestige and the money um, and, and the sponsorship reasons why they're all there. So the team just want either driver to come first and second and um, it's up to the drivers to fight out who is going to be first and second in Mexico. Ed, um, Checo's podium has moved him up to fourth in the championship standings. I mean, if you look at the races we've got left, um, Mexico, home race for him. Brazil, you never know what could happen in that. You know, on a track that has a high altitude, I think 700 metres above sea level is the Interlagos circuit that could suit the Honda engine. You go to Qatar, where, in fact, Sergio Perez has raced at in the past at the LaSalle International Circuit during his GP2 Asia Series days. Saudi Arabia, which you could say is an equaliser racetrack for all the drivers. And Abu Dhabi is a racetrack where Perez has performed well at in the past. So you have to say that for Red Bull at the moment, not just with Verstappen that could potentially, you know, continue the form he's in, but also with Perez, who's starting to find his form once more. Yeah, that's what Red Bull need in case Verstappen has some bad luck, like he picked up in Baku. So they need Perez to be quick at all those circuits. And he's pretty good at most of them, uh, Mexico, as you said. So I definitely can see Perez potentially picking up a win if Max has an issue or... I mean, for Mexico, I can definitely see that if Hamilton is stuck in the traffic and is about 6th, 7th, 8th, I can see Checo being allowed to win his home Grand Prix. As long as Verstappen gets in the top three, I think that's what Red Bull will want and that will probably be OK for them. But I can definitely see Perez being in the top three for most of those tracks. I can definitely see him get a podium in Mexico. I can definitely see him get a podium in Lagos. Uh, Qatar, as you mentioned, GP2 Asia, he hasn't been back there for some time, but it's another equaliser of a circuit because not many of the F1 grid have been there. So he may get a podium. And also Jeddah, the same, the same equation. Abu Dhabi as well, he performed well. He was unlucky not to get a podium last year, but unfortunately the racing point colts out uh, early on in the in the Grand Prix. So, Shaka's got a few chances of getting his second win of the season. Who would have thought it that over a year ago that when Sergio Perez was basically staring at a P45 would potentially have three Grand Prix wins and having his best season to date. So, it's been a remarkable transformation for Perez and it would be a very heartwarming story if he, if he can win in Mexico, but he will know that he must play the championship game uh, to Verstappen and get give Verstappen as much help as possible. But with Hamilton potentially taking a penalty in Mexico, it may be a case of, is one for you, old chum? 
and he may get his home Grand Prix and you know, remarkable uh, feat considering that I don't even believe Pedro Rodriguez won his home Grand Prix. So let's see what happens, I, I say, in two weeks. Yeah, most certainly. Well, Perez's form uh, in the last couple of rounds has been a lot better than it was in the, in the rounds before. And people felt that, you know, Perez was on the going down the, the sort of Gasly or Albon routes, but he's pretty much found the form that we've seen from him earlier on in the season, you know, particularly in, um, I think in Portsmouth a little bit, um, I think Barcelona as well, Bahrain, where he came through from the pit lane to finish in fifth. Um, I think, in, yeah, Paul Ricard was another race, he got a podium, and I think he finished on the podium in Rebel Ring or something like that. But Red Bull have just got to take every chance possible now. I mean, they cannot surely get a better chance of winning a championship in the V6 Turbo Hybrid era than what they've got now. Well, see, that's the thing is Perez didn't actually get a podium in, in Austria. Uh, it was in uh, it, it was his first podium in Turkey since France. Um, so I think that just shows how much he has. And let's be fair to him, he has struggled. Uh, for quite a large chunk of this season um, in the grand scheme of things when Red Bull needed him to perform, but he's back on it. Uh, he's helping Verstappen. And I think I can agree with you, Tom, that is, it's their best chance in the turbo hybrid era purely because they've never had a chance before. But realistically, Mercedes and uh, Ferrari have swept things up realistically. So personally, I don't really care who wins this championship because we've had a fantastic fight all year. Either way, it's a historic a historic result. Dutch first Dutch world champion or the first eight-time world champion. Realistically, you can't get a better storyline than this. I haven't really seen a better storyline than this since the the fight four five in 2018 with uh, with Vettel and Hamilton. So, yeah, looking at Mexico, in my personal opinion, although I although everyone would love to see a good result for Perez, Verstappen has always seen Mexico as a happy hunting ground. 2017, 2018, he won. 2019 took pole position and then had it stripped off of him because of a yellow flag incident. Arguably, he could have won that race, but it was quite a sloppy Grand Prix for Verstappen, so he, he ended up missing out on that one. So I think Red Bull are going to have to judge whether they think about marketing, because in Mexico, if Perez wins, their sales are going to go through the roof, or the championship, it's going to be an interesting storyline, I think. But for all we know, Hamilton and, and Mercedes could really uh, could really come at this with with some good pace if they don't take penalties. Mm -hmm. And Mexico most certainly preparing for its uh, for its Grand Prix on its return after missing last year due to the pandemic. Whilst the Americans may have been happy to have a race back in Austin after a year out, they had some other good news involving one of their uh, one of their drivers, and it's Logan Sargent who has been signed on by Williams in their driver academy. So Williams has announced the signing of Logan Sargent, who has officially joined the team's driver academy as part of a long-term agreement. Sargent most recently competed in his third FIA Formula 3 campaign and in the 2021 championship in seventh with four podiums, which included a race victory at the Sochi Autodrome. In 2020, the American was in contention for the F3 title, but missed out on the championship at the final round in Mugello. I am delighted to be joining the Williams Racing Driver Academy, Sargent said. It's a team with not only a fantastic history, but a great track record of bringing young talent into Formula One. I'm really excited to begin working with the team and can't wait to hit the ground running. As part of his role, Williams say that the 20-year-old will take part in simulator work and assist with car development, becoming fully immersed into the team, both trackside 
and at the factory in Grove. Williams has not yet outlined what Sargent's 2022 racing plans will be, but stated they will be announced in due course. Williams CEO Yost Capito added, I am, I am incredibly pleased to welcome Logan to the Williams Racing Driver Academy. He's demonstrated his talent in FIA Formula 3, consistently delivering strong results in an extremely competitive field. I'm proud that Williams will play a part in supporting the progression and growth of another talented young driver. Last month, Williams confirmed that he had signed Alexander Albon as a full-time driver for next year alongside Nicholas Satifi, with George Russell departing for Mercedes. So it's, it's great news, guys. And, and Logan Sargent very much warrants a place in a driver academy, you know, whether it's Williams, McLaren or Red Bull or Ferrari or Mercedes. He's got his chance, Ed. And I think with that, with that signing, it can only mean some extra sponsorship money to help support um, his junior programme. We could well finally see him on the Formula 2 grid. Definitely. And it's, again, another remarkable transformation, considering that at the start of 2021, Logan Sargent looked like his looked like it was curtains for his Formula One dream. He had no drive in F2, no drive in F3, no money, and it looked like he was going to go to GT Racing. Now he's got a Williams Driver Academy contract in his pocket. A great season with Shrews last year and this year this year in F3, and for Liberty Media, it's the American driver that they finally got and. I think if he does well in F2, Williams would be would need to seriously think about promoting him because he's extremely quick. He can drag everything out of an average car or a good car. Look how he did with Prima. Look how he did with Charouz. Charouz were at the back. He moved them up through the field. So it's, it's great news for Williams. It's great news for Formula 1 in America. And I think F2 is definitely now a foot, is definitely on the horizon, whether that's with Charouz or with another team, I'm not quite sure. But it's good news for American motorsport. And as well as the fact that Colton Hurtin may be another two, three years down the pipeline, it's that American driver that Formula One needs to really build around the momentum they're gaining by having Miami and possibly Las Vegas. So it's good news all around. And, it will, and I will um, predict that it will keep Latifi and Albon uh, on their toes for 2022 because with Sargent waiting in the wings and if he has another good season, he may very well find himself in Formula One. Mm -hmm. Well, Sargent has been a phenomenal driver in Formula 3 and he's done his bit in there now. He doesn't need to be doing another year. So I think we can only assume that, you know, considering how busy the Formula 2 schedule is going to be next year, 14 rounds and 28 races beginning in Bahrain in March and ending in Abu Dhabi, I believe, the last round in, um, in November. Next year, that is. Sargent, you have to say, is that his Formula 2 drive sealed next year it's just a matter of where it's going to be i'd personally say so um williams we've seen over the last few years have had a few of their their junior drivers in in formula two roy nasani uh dan tickton didn't exactly go to plan um so i think i think he could possibly go to uh to dams or carlin uh two of the top uh names in junior motorsport which would be really good for him two strong teams obviously prema have pretty much um dominated Formula Two over recent years. Uh, I don't think that's um, that's something that you can say is controversial. They've done a really good job, uh, but Carlin and Dams have been willing races, and they they just need that driver to sort of give them a push. And I think the main thing that we have to look at is, like Ed said, and I I, I don't think I could agree uh, I could agree more on this. It, it's it really is going to keep Albon and Latifi on their on their toes. 
I think Latifi more because although Latifi is a strong driver, uh, Safina Foods, uh, Lavazza sponsorship money, I don't think Williams are in as much need of it uh, as they as they were when they signed him. So realistically, taking a look at things, I think pressure is going to be on for for Latifi next season. Mm-hmm. LA, Logan Sargent, you know, truly phenomenal driver. We've seen, I think he's done something like 54 races. He's done every FIA Formula 3 race since the championship changed from what it was, the GP3 series. How much does Sargent deserve this opportunity with the Williams Driver Academy? Because if you remember at the beginning of the season, you know, there were maybe rumours. He did a, like a, I think he did a pre-season test with Campos in an F2 machine, but wasn't able to get a drive um, because of sponsorship. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think every driver in the feeder series, you know, they're, they're brought on and developed into the great drivers that they're becoming. And there's becoming more and more of them because of the development programme that every driver sort of deserves a, a place and a seat. But what I do like about the Sergeant story is that he's kind of been sort of overlooked a little bit, in my opinion. You know, I mean, we've had the, the American, you know, media involved now in Formula One. Um, and the was a question when they came in of well you have no American drivers so Sargent's been floating around and even just I think it was just a couple of races back when the um, Sky Sports commentators were talking about Andretti coming in back into the sport and potential drivers for for them that would be great if they got an American driver obviously that would help the American driver program and um, I can't recall the commentators mentioning Logan Sargent's name whatsoever it's almost like he they didn't know about him or he didn't exist you know and and obviously Colton heard his names come up and kept coming up and coming up and my my question in my own head to myself is well why him when he's over there on a completely different series we have Logan Sargent he's here he's in the development program he's in the feeder series what about him poor guy and I think he he even mentioned it in an interview can't remember if it was this season or last season and it was a little bit like hi you know I'm here (laughs) you know look at me I'm American (laughs) I can do this um so now eventually the focus is on him his name's coming up and it's really great news it's great news for the feeder series and it's really good news that he can now hopefully next season step up into F2 I think that will definitely be pretty much the, the plan and the year after, I can see him go, unless he has an absolutely disastrous, horrendous, horrific season, uh, I think he can then step up into Formula One uh, the season the season after, if he can prove himself and he's ready and there's a team ready for him, then why not? And um, I think it would hope, hopefully then encourage the American driver programme too. You know, there was a huge amount of fans at that circuit this weekend at COTA. Mm. Normally fans at that circuit can be from across the world you know a lot of British fans go to Austin you know a lot of um, fans around Europe go to Austin and because of the current restrictions they weren't able to yet look at how full that circuit was it was incredible to see most of those fans were were American North American fans that were there and there's a huge huge interest now in Formula One so if they, they can get one of their own in a car as well perfect that, that's a fairy tale story isn't it yeah and there's the rumors as well the links of um andretti taking over um sauber as well i think it's like an 80 percent stake as well so that's that would be even bigger news um for the american market you know not just i know we've already got an american team with formula one in house but it's obviously nice to have a big name of andretti 
coming back into Formula One and putting the what is effectively the Sauber team, because the Alfa Romeo racing team is owned by the Sauber Motorsport Group. But it would just be great, you know, to sort of form that kind of outfit. You know, we know how successful Andretti have been in IndyCar. They've been so for many years. It'd be nice to have that kind of success in Formula One as well and put um, effectively the Sauber team back on the um, Formula One map. So we'll go on to some other news. Um, it's to do with Australia because Australia's largest city, Sydney, is exploring a bid to poach the country's Formula One Grand Prix from the city of Melbourne, which has hosted the event annually since 1996, according to local media. A report by Australia's Seven Network states that the New South Wales government has begun exploring the option of bidding for the event once Melbourne's current deal expires in 2025. Melbourne, located in the state of Victoria, has played host to the race every year since 1996, only missing the last two because of the pandemic. With tight, uh, sorry, with tight border controls and a slow vaccine rollout, this year's race was also cancelled despite being moved to later in the season. Australia has traditionally opened the season. However, with the vaccine rollout picking up pace, Australian cities, including Melbourne, have begun to relax those tight restrictions and next year's race has been included on the calendar with it due to host round three on April the 10th. But with just four years left of its current deal with Formula One, Sydney is considering a bid to replace Melbourne on the calendar with a Monaco-style street race around the famous harbour as it looks to invest in major events to boost its economy following the pandemic. According to the Seven Network report, sensitive high-level talks are underway, though it wasn't confirmed if this was internally within the government or whether it involved F1 bosses. NSW's investment minister, Stuart Ayres, is reportedly heading up the bid, though wouldn't comment on record. Meanwhile, reacting to the report, Australian GP chief Andrew Westcott insists his team will do everything to secure the future of the event for Melbourne. There are always bids and always forays from major event ministers and officers in various countries and cities around the world. They would not be doing their job if they were not reviewing their options, he told The Age. You can't take your eye off the ball and you can't be complacent in the world of major events. We are not complacent. It will be three years between events when April comes around. So our job is to make sure that everyone gets behind the events and it shows its worth for the Victorian visitor economy. We are happening next year and it will continue to happen. Our remit is to look beyond 2025. Um, I don't know what you think, guys, but a Monaco-style street circuit in Australia. Now, I'm not 100% sure what exactly what they mean by that. Are we thinking on the negative side of it, thinking it's going to be some sort of procession events? Or is it actually going to sort of provide the Monaco kind of feel, but actually with the racing that links with the modern day world of motor racer and not something you know from 30 or 40 years ago Ed, your reaction to this because i've enjoyed melbourne track action has been few and far between though which i think along with the configuration changes to the albert park circuit to go with the ground effect on one machines from 2022 what would you be prepared to see well, let's first off address the, uh, the Sydney rumours. Um, as in, in the words of uh, former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating, it's all tip and no iceberg. It's there to generate a few headlines, and I don't believe it will happen. I think Melbourne is perfectly secure as it is um, uh, in hosting the Australian Grand Prix. I'm, I'm pleased with the, the look of the new layout. Obviously, we've not had a chance to test them out because Formula One has not been there 
for three years when we come round to hosting round four, three or four of the championship, I believe. Um, three. three, three of the championship uh, next year. I think it should be better racing because the cars will be smaller and with the ground effect, it should be more interesting. Melbourne has just has always been a good race to have on the calendars. Good atmosphere. There's always a good turnout. Sydney, mm, it sounds good on paper, but I, I just don't think it would be a particularly good race. I think it would be a bit of a flash in the pan. I, I think F1 should stick with Melbourne. It's a trusted venue. It's a decent circuit. The redevelopment to the layouts may work. And if Sydney wants to roast the race, maybe they should have their own Grand Prix, but maybe call it something like the Pacific Grand Prix or something like that, or the Global Grand Prix, whatever name uh, they can think of. So, no, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think Sydney will get off the ground, and I think Melbourne's place will be secured to at least 2030. Um, and, you know, it's not a bad circuit. It's not the, it's not the greatest circuit in the world, but it's decent. And I think with the new cars, there is the potential to have exciting racing. So, as I've said, all tip and no iceberg with these one with these rumors. Mm-hmm. Well, we've had so many street circuits come on and off the calendar over the years in Formula One, and we've. I don't have a problem with street circuits, but street circuits need to provide good racing in the modern era, not something you know from many years ago, just to sort of mimic the history of another particular event that we all know. Realistically, we take a look at street circuits that have. Um... That have come in the past. Singapore, uh, that's, that's a pretty good one. Baku, we all enjoy that. It provides some chaos and some good racing every now and again. A Sydney Grand Prix, uh, I just, I, I can't see it happening, and I don't really like the sound of it to be honest. I think Ed pretty much summed it up perfectly there. Um, I think someone just sort of, just a bit of a slow news day, had a look at the the Wheel of Fortune, spun it. Oh, Sydney Grand Prix. Let's write about that. Let's see if we can get a few, a few clicks. I, I don't think it's there's any um, traction behind the rumor. Like like it says in the quote, there's always bids. Uh, there's always going to be discussions about oh, what if we went to uh, to this place. And unfortunately, quite a lot of the time, people hear hear things like this and and spin it out of control and it it gains traction and becomes a news story. So I think we've all experienced things like that. We've all had uh, our our fair share of of oddballs in in terms of news stories. And I think this one's just going to be swept under the rug pretty quickly, to be honest. Mm -hmm. LA, I'm sure you've enjoyed um, the 24 Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne and maybe the other 11 um, in Adelaide. But would Sydney be a a cemented home of the Australian Grand Prix. Would it feel like an Australian Grand Prix with Formula heading there, or is it as good as it is in Albert Park right now? No, I mean, I'm always open-minded to new venues. You know, you can you can sometimes maybe get a little bit bored, but we haven't had Melbourne for a couple of years now, so we're all excited to go back there. It wasn't always a favourite uh, with the teams. They used to find it a bit of a, an issue and a struggle to be getting across the park. It's not easy access for the, for the team, for, for the whole charade that is Formula One. Um, but I think that has changed in recent years, and, um, you know, the teams and the drivers really like going there now. And it's a great fun place Melbourne it's um it's more chilled out you know it's more relaxed and the circuit's in in an amazingly great area that can accommodate Formula One Sydney is a commercial working city and where if they plan to have it around the harbour where exactly are they going to plan to have it um Sydney is a grid 
city um you know like new york like you know so how do you put a circuit on on a grid system um and yes you can go over the bridge i'm sure i'm sure it's all about that you know it's all about the idea of cars buzzing around bridges and, and around the water but it's still not that practical as a race circuit I don't think um you know I have lived in Sydney and from my memory it, I can't I don't know where they're gonna race these cars up and down George Street I don't know really fast um it's a great it's a nice idea I think because Sydney Harbour is an amazingly beautiful area you know of the world and, and it's fabulous to think you might one day they might go over the bridges but I think we talked about this last podcast even Miami when they were considering their bid they had it all around Biscayne Bay um, my memory unless I'm completely wrong is of Ricardo and, and the two Red Bulls driving over the bridges you know and at, at night and then Ricardo having photographs taken on one of the islands that was going to be transformed into part of the circuit with the the view of downtown you know which was an amazing backdrop an amazingly exciting notion but practically they've now they're now putting it where they're putting it uh, because the practicality of that of all the bay wasn't quite there and I think to close down a working commercial city for a race weekend probably isn't that practical either you know mm -hmm. so it's a nice idea it's a nice notion and if it happens I'll be fully supportive and very excited but I think as Ed said what you know what if it, if it can work why not do it as well as as a back-to-back as -back? why not have two races there you know there's, there's, there's no problem in that the distance between Melbourne and Sydney is the same distance as some of the European destinations that, that we have over here. So why not? But yeah, well, well, I mean, back to Melbourne though, come on. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, Sydney does have, as hosted top line racing before it had uh, the V8 supercars around the Olympic Park, but from what I've read, it was pretty dreadful. So they got rid of it. There is a nice circuit, the Sydney Motorsport Park, where they've hosted the predecessor to the MotoGP Championship, uh, the 500cc World Championship, but it's not grade one so there would need to be a lot of work and let's not kid ourselves that's the street circuit around Sydney would not be ready until the second year they would need to build that circuit up and then it's a bit of a waste of money because you're not going to race there so yeah park isn't in the city it's it's right down the, the river it's nowhere near the city so it's it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be the city race then would it, it wouldn't be the harbour race because the the Olympic Park isn't on the harbour no so it's pretty much a lose-lose idea and I don't I will also say that I don't think hosting races back-to-back -back works in the same country because Japan tried it in the mid-90s it backfired Aida was never never sold out Suzuka never sold out either for the first time in about nine years so it, as I said sorry seven years as I've said old tip and no iceberg let's move on with this rumor please let's put it in the shredder yeah, um, I mean, we've seen a lot of countries host more than one race um, during the year. I mean, obviously there was last year where Italy hosted three races, Austria hosted two, Silverstone hosted two, Bahrain hosted two. Um, 97, in fact, 97 was another year where we had three countries host two races. Spain did with Barcelona, Jerev. Italy did with Imola and Monza. And Germany did with Hockenheim and Nürburgring. That was another example of that as well. And I don't know... Yeah, in Grand Prix, haven't we? Where the same country of Valencia, you know, and uh, yeah. Barcelona, we've had countries hosting the European Grand Prix, and there's been two races back to back. But I can see what Ed's saying, definitely. Yeah. 
yeah i i can see that as well and um i don't have a problem with conscious hosting more than one race just as long as the racing's there i know there's this thing going around saying well how can it be a world championship if you know sort of overlooking this rule where only one country there's only a country can host one race but the thing is more that different countries have different heritages different cultures as well italy has a phenomenal culture and heritage for motorsport with loads of different circuits you know you think about i know some of them are not grade one but could be grade one in the future if, if they wanted to i mean there's already monza Mugello, imola Vellalunga, and of course you know rome that hosted the e-prix as well so also, you're also forgetting mazzano which hosts Mazzano, yeah year in year out well, we'll soon find out when Miami and Austin are on the same calendar, won't we? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be competition all round, and it's the same with the Middle East as well, with the likes of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain. I mean, there's competition everywhere, and there's only so many places on the grid. I mean, there's about 30 to 35 circuits that could potentially host the Formula 1 race, but yet only so many of them could fit the bill, either because the circuit organisers can make the event sustainable year after year, i.e. Imola, who are able to get a €20 million Euro per year um, agreement sorted with 60% of that coming from their local government and of course Miami which we all know that where the money's going in the money's coming in I should say and there's rumours maybe Las Vegas could join the calendar which for me wouldn't be at all surprising and there's also Kyle which is muted as a potential venue in South Africa going there you were you were quite bemused actually with all the Las Vegas stuff as well weren't you I just don't think Las Vegas would work I, I, I just don't know where they're going to stick it I don't know I just don't see it working out. I think it's going to be a flash in the pan. Um, it's like Turkey, for example. People clamour for Turkey to be bought on the calendar full time. But you have to look at it in the fact that what's going to happen after the first year when the novelty wears off? You know, if locals don't want to come and tourists who maybe hear that, oh, well, I don't know, let's say the circuit is a pain in the backside to get out of, they're not going to come. It's, it's, it's difficult because we need F1 needs to go back to Africa for a start. That should be the number one priority. And then start thinking about where else we could go. Finland's got a grade one track. Finland have loved Formula One for years since the days of Keke Rosberg. We should be probably going to there. Thailand, grade one circuit. What we've never tried Thailand. We need to go back a bit more deep into Asia because we're losing Asian races left, right and centre. So I, I just think Las Vegas is not the the right idea at the right time. If Miami flops and there's still a demand for a second race, Las Vegas is there. But free race in the US, I mean, no, 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 no. That's 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 just that's just no. I mean, Italy. I, I think I think we have to be careful that we're not just going to have too many street circuits on the calendar. You know, they're they're great in their own right. They're fantastic. They have great backdrops, great scenery. You know, it's all fabulous, but we still want to keep the core of race circuits and, and you know, racetracks uh, in my view. You know, no. let's, not, let's not just keep going onto streets and racing on streets. Yeah. And if we're talking, one last point about this, if we're talking about having free races, Italy can easily turn around saying, well, hang on a minute, we hosted free races during the pandemic. We won another race. We've got Mugello. And Imola's contract, I think, was probably helped by the fact that made that the Italian government are putting their Made in Italy initiative behind uh, the Grand Prix, hence why you saw it all over the circuit in 2020, in 2021. So it's, again, it's like a runaway train. But when do you put the brakes on and get all the passengers out? That's, that's the question I want to 
to us. But Las Vegas is a, uh, it's just a step too far. I don't think the city would embrace it. I don't think the casinos would embrace it. The hotels may like it. But if you're going to stick it in somewhere where a town like it was in the 80s, people are just going to go, no, just not, just not for me. Go on, go on. I was just about to say they could do what they did last time and just stick it in a car park. So there's that option all, uh, all along the way. So, oh, God help us. God help us. No, no, no. I mean, no, no, no. Vegas, to be fair, Vegas has changed quite a lot in the last few years. Uh, you know, the outer, the urban areas now, the, well, the suburbs, sorry, um, are, are now expanding tremendously um and it would, would perhaps have been a great idea if you had any money about you to have invested in some properties out there you know sort of within the last sort of five years or so but uh, unfortunately uh, most of us aren't in that kind of position but yeah i can see how they can still use a part of the city uh, and then go into you know towards the outer suburbs i don't think they have to use car park anymore and um you know put it out somewhere else um but they'd still uh, definitely again with the grid system you know of the city how they're going to utilize that i don't know but... again it's a non-starter i mean there was rumors ages ago that we we're going to have a grand prix in copenhagen where are they gone so, yeah, I, I think we've also got to be careful that and i know it's probably a major talk is it's going to die down we don't want to blow it up too big but you know the celebrities that turned up this particular weekend in austin um and i don't want formula one to turn into some it's entertaining for sports it's entertaining for for motor racing fans um and i don't want it just to turn into some massive marketing uh promotional tool for celebrities and for and for people and i think the more circuits we have in these fantastical cities around the world the more that's going to attract that kind of a, an audience but then in saying that look how the world's going in with influencers and media anyway and social media so maybe that is the way motorsports going yeah and even at permanent circuits like uh, the bud international circuit in um, in india where of course rowan atkinson made his appearance uh, in the McLaren garage as well we can't forget that I think we can we can all accept that and take it with a pinch of salt you know the guy's brilliant <laughs> um, but he, lo he loves his racing cars we can't forget that either so um, this takes me on to my next point um, we, we we talked about it last week with um, with Joe Ellis and Tom Featherston but I'm interested to get your thoughts guys on next year's calendar and um, we'll begin with you Will on this because I know how anticipated you have been about the calendar for next year it's a 23 race calendar that begins on march the 20th and it ends on november the 20th to help with, with you know without clashing with the um, the fifa world cup that's happening in qatar we've got miami coming in and some of the others which haven't been able to feature on the calendar this year i.e australia japan singapore canada they're all on there and imola has been added as well as a permanent venue, I think it's a four-year um, deal of which they have um, already signed or are about to sign. Your reaction to the calendar itself? Um, well, I've sort of got a bit of a, uh, a split uh, few thoughts on it, to be honest. I'm quite happy with the, the way it's turned out. It, that's, it's a bit of a mess in certain respects, going to uh, Miami and then flying back to Europe and then heading to Canada and then back to Europe and then over to Texas as, again later on in the year. It's, in my opinion, you should just sort of, uh, especially with F1 wanting to uh, reduce its carbon footprint, one way they could do that in terms of logistics is have 
the chunks of the seasons put back together like they used to be. Canada and uh, Indianapolis used to be put together for a reason, to make it easier for the teams. Um, at the same time, my main thought on, on, the, uh, on the calendar was where's Portugal? Uh, Portugal, China, obviously China, a, a different reason for why it's not on the calendar next year. But Portugal, I think, has done a really good job hosting Grand Prix. So they haven't been the most exciting in the world. They haven't been uh, as wacky as Texas was last weekend, but it did its job. And in my personal opinion, I think it, it deserves a place on the calendar uh, rather than targeting two Grand Prix in certain countries. Obviously, I know we've got to break into the good markets. Uh, Formula One has to. But at the same time, Portugal is a good market as well. Look at the, the way Ronaldo has transformed uh, the way that, that people look at football in that country, arguably. Um, I think F1 missed out on a good opportunity with uh, Antonio Felix da Costa when he was in the Red Bull programme. Um, Portugal is a good place for, uh, for sports fans as well. So there's, there's that option to look at. And my final point on it is don't really get too, um, too cosy with this calendar because let's face it, uh, we're still in quite the unpredictable situation. We're still in a situation where things can change at the snap of a finger. And in my opinion, is this calendar going to be the exact same one that we see now by the time we finish the championship next year? Arguably, you could say no, because things can change in an instant at a minute. Yeah. And obviously, well, we talked about Australia earlier. I mean, we don't know what the restrictions are going to be. I think I saw something that New South Wales were um, easing on their restrictions over um, in Australia. Um, that's what my sister's boyfriend um, has told me because he's from Australia himself. But, you know, with the calendar as it is, um, I'm obviously happy that Imola is back on the calendar on a permanent basis this time. And of course, Formula 2, Formula 3 going there as well. Your reaction to this, because there's been a few change arounds as well, because Saudi Arabia has been moved to the second race of the season as part of a back to back with Bahrain. There is France as well that's been moved to July as part of a back to back with Hungary. Um. A mixture of feelings with this calendar. Uh, from a racing standpoint, I think it's very good. I think it has the right balance of fan favourites and circuits that Formula One needs to visit to, for money purposes and for the fact that, you know, it, it makes sense having Saudi Arabia straight after Bahrain. Um, and Imola coming back full-time till about 2025 is a, a good, good news for the sport in Italy. The Double header between Hungary and France. I'm, I'm a little bit unsure how that's going to go, but France will have uh, the spirit of France. Will be going F1 will be going to France on the weekend of Bastille Day, so there will be a really patriotic uh, atmosphere in the Circuit de Paul Ricard. Um, it is very crammed though. It's there's not many breaks. It's a very, it's very tightly compact, and I know why they've done it because of the FIFA World Cup that has thrown a spanner in the works. But as Will has said, don't get too comfortable with this calendar because there's two races that right off the bat I can see potentially being cancelled if things are not quite back to normal, that's Singapore and Australia. In which case I can see Turkey moving into Singapore slots and then Australia, maybe Portugal gets a reprieve. Um, although it's a shame that it is off the calendar, but obviously um, they've been out smart and outgunned with the money side of it, of hosting a Grand Prix. Uh, it's a good calendar. I'm I'm happy with the way it is, but I do seriously worry for the mechanics. I worry for all the people working inside the paddock because they're going to barely get any rest. So that's the only downside to it, really. It's going to be a hard one for the teams. It's going to be a hard one for the drivers. But 
I'm pleased with it. But again, don't, as Will said, don't get too comfortable with it because it could easily change. And we may have a couple of old favourites returning to make up the numbers. Maybe even Nürburgring, for example, if a third race goes off the calendar, whatever that may be. That's an interesting last bit you've mentioned there, Nürburgring. You know, Germany does not have a Grand Prix, despite the fact that they are securing the knowledge that Mick Schumacher and Sebastian Vettel are on the grid. And of course, Mercedes-Benz there as well. Um, LA, your reaction to the calendar, I'm interested to get your thoughts on it, because I don't know if all your favourites are on there. But for a season to sort of be, you know, from March the 20th to November the 20th, eight months in between having 23 races, which will be a record-breaking calendar for Formula One. You have to say in some ways, in a way it kind of helps because the fact you get a season finished sooner means a longer winter break for 2023 begins. Uh, yeah, it sort of swings and roundabouts really for the teams. Um, there's obviously no choice with that, uh, with the season finishing sooner uh, because of the is the World Cup, isn't it? That's yeah, Qatar, going, yeah. yeah, that's right. So there's no choice next year um, that that has to happen. And I think if there was a choice, they probably wouldn't be finishing that early and they would try and break up some of these triple headers um, from um, inside whispers. Um, non hearts of team members absolutely sunk when they saw this calendar. It's not only to do with rest. You know, of course, everybody needs rest. Um, it's it's there's no work and home balance. You know, in in their lives. Um, I know you, you people can sit at home and think, oh, well, these guys have been lucky because they've still been traveling the world. They've still been, you know, doing their job. They've still been working when so many people have been stuck at home and locked down and lost their jobs. Um, it, it isn't like that. It's all relative, isn't it, um, to, to, to the individual and to their families. They still deserve family life we all do you know we're, we're all going to be busy we're all involved in in some respect in formula one formula two formula three w series you know and, and how's that going to be for everybody with the increase in race weekends in the other feeder series as well um it's going to be hard and tough on everybody and yes of course you know if, if the calendar goes ahead as it is then then great we get all our races back as a fan um but you know even that first triple header yeah okay australia might not go ahead will is completely right this calendar i still think we're very a bit too close to the australian grand prix for that to still go ahead at the definitely at the beginning of the year um even if they do start coming out of their lockdowns and do start lifting restrictions we started it months ago and we're still not out properly so their program is going to take quite a few months as well when they start to lift everything so i can't see um australia going ahead that early in the season but it could still be popped in and then there's quite sort of a bit of a, a nasty triple header a bit further on isn't there it's the Sochi um there's a European one probably won't be too bad with the Belgium Zanvoort and, and Italy but it's a Sochi Singapore and Japan it's like really <laughs> serious <laughs> I, I don't know how they'll be able to cope with that to be honest with you I, I really really don't I, 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 racing, I just don't know how they would do it. I have no idea because, you know, it's, it's, are, are they, 
you're right about carbon footprints you know we're, we're talking about carbon footprints here we're talking about flights to and from these races all around the world um maybe teams the, the money situations changing for teams the financial situations changing yet it kind of looks like they're going to need more staff and extra staff to cover these races they're going to be killing people <laughs> you know people are going to start being ill <laughs> and um and it's not i don't know i think from a human point of view and a sensitive point of view it, I don't actually like the look of this calendar. I, I really don't like it. Yeah. Uh, it looks, I mean, some, I know some people like seeing a lot of races, but 23 just sounds a bit too many, if you ask me. I always like it when the season starts in the first weekend of March and ends in mid to late October. It, it's a longer wait, but it's meant to be like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sat here complaining, you know, and if I was offered a, a first class role in the broadcast team of Sky Sports F1, then yeah. I'd be straight there and I'd stop moaning. But <laughs> no, but I do know, I, you know, I do know some people that um, have kind of looked at it with with horror um, and I'm sure they're getting a lot of earache from home right now until the idea settles in. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, with the calendar at the moment, it's just, you know, it, it's hectic as it is. And, you know, with um, Igora Drive taking over from um, Sochi in 2023. There's obviously Kyle Lamy being rumoured of possibly joining in 23, if not 24. There's always going to be new venues that Formula is going to be going to, and the calendar is just going to end up um, increasing at the moment. I know their limit is 25 officially, but I've got a feeling they'll just overlook it, to be quite honest with you. Um, I've got a question in from someone, well, a couple of questions of it, but my phone's just been a little bit. Um, slow but I'll ask uh, we'll go back to the thing with Austin because we haven't spoken too much about Ferrari and McLaren we'll we'll begin with you um, we've got we had a quite a backlash between the Ferraris and the McLarens we talked about you know the Ricardo and Sainz sort of um, battle that was going on we didn't see too much of Norris in that one he had a quite a, a quiet race in that um, Leclerc had his Leclerc had a quiet race as well so it was pretty much between Ricardo and um, Sainz really before Bottas got by the Ferrari um, in the closing laps? Well, Leclerc and Norris had pretty quiet races, but for, for different reasons, really, because throughout the race, Leclerc, arguably, was was on the pace of Perez, and especially in that final stint, he closed the gap, I think, at one point by three seconds. I'm not entirely sure what the gap was at the end between the two, but Leclerc, in my opinion, had a very impressive race. He never really got shown, but that's because he didn't really do anything. He just got his head down and, and got on with it. Norris, meanwhile, I think... Um, he came out and said that uh, I think he said he was scared during the opening lap because uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure why, but obviously it's understandable. There's this massive fight and the way that those three uh, science Ricardo and Norris was all dicing on the first lap. I genuinely thought they were going to come together at one point. Um, at one point, the, uh, the provisional gap between the two teams was just half a point. And in all honesty, um, imagine the storylines. And this is something I probably hope will happen because it will be amazing to see. McLaren and Ferrari, one of them could win by half a point, and that is it, half a point. We haven't seen that sort of gap since, uh, what, 1984, Nicky Lauder and Alan Frost? I think it was 84. Yeah, it was 84, yeah. Yeah, so it, it would be an amazing story, especially between McLaren and Ferrari, you know, 2007, 98, 76, could be the, um, the two of them sort of coming back to uh, fight for the title next year, which would be amazing to see. I've got this question or a couple of questions for you guys um, from F1 Edits 33 and it's saying the, the race in Austin was mainly all about strategy. Do you agree? And what if Max 
it says late. Who wants to answer that question first? I'm going to choose now, aren't I? We'll begin with Ed on this one first. Yes, I do believe it was all about strategy. I think with the fact that it was a hot day at Texas and the fact that hard, the hard tyres uh, were the tyre of choice uh, for Sunday, it was definitely all about strategy. And I think if the staff had pitted just a little bit later, maybe lap 32, 33, I still think he would have won. I think he would have just had fresher tyres and the gap would have been slightly bigger at the end. But yes, uh, he is right. It, it was all about strategy. There was all about, you know, when are the teams going to make the call? When are the teams going to cover off one another? Um, and mainly because there wasn't that as much on-track action. So yes, I, I believe it was. And the staff board is still won, but would have won by a bigger margin. margin. So those are my answers. Yeah. LA, um, Austin, all about strategy for you? Or is there a touch of driver's skill you've got to add in there? Well, it's always a combination of both, isn't it, really? Um, because you've got the strategists doing their job and they're, they're high experts. And then the drivers then have to respond to the strategy that's been put before them. They don't always necessarily go along with that plan or agree with it. But at the end of the day, they, they mostly trust their team. Um, it did have a slight effect uh, because, as unless correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Carlos Sainz in Q2 um, drove his better lap on the soft tyres and not the mediums because he had a, an issue in the on the medium tyres, which meant that he had to start the race on the softs. So that had a um, effect and a bearing on uh, his race strategy and what he was going to do. Um, yes, we know the Ferraris and the McLarens are so evenly matched and it's just going to be incredible towards the end of the season. And they were, were equally matched during this race. Obviously, they were all scrapping. Um, I think that Norris was referring to being scared because of that very first incident on that first lap. He he could see himself actually T-boning uh, Charles um, and he didn't want to do that. Obviously, it took himself out anyway, no doubt, if he had have done. Um, and, and I think that sometimes maybe, you know, like Martin Brundell doesn't necessarily agree with all, all the guys being mates and being really pally in the paddock, you know, being good friends. And you can kind of see sometimes that might come into play um, because Lando is, is very good friends with, with Carlos, who's now in a different team. Um, obviously forming a nice relationship with with Danny and he said he didn't want to crash into Danny you know obviously he's his teammate and he doesn't want to take his team out and and then he didn't want to t-bone Charles and if that would have been Max Verstappen that those thoughts wouldn't have been going through his head he'd have absolutely have just gone through and charged and stuff everybody else so I, I don't know I mean maybe being pals with everybody in the in in different teams isn't necessarily always a good thing good for us at home it's quite nice isn't it <laughs> to watch these things happen but to counter that they were all mates in the 70s and they all traveled together in the 70s but they raced just as hard so I don't think the, the friendship side of it really matters okay maybe at times they may slightly back off but in the 70s it was just what he said in his interview it does yeah. Came across that he was yeah. being really considerate of the if it maybe if it had been some of the other guys he wouldn't have been as perhaps 
I don't know. <laughs> but I think I think that affected his race. It, you know, it pushed him back, didn't it? And you're right, he had a just meandering round by himself. And Charles, I think the well, I think the difference was 10 seconds in the end um, between um, Perez and Leclerc, even though they got pretty close, you know, at one point. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be exciting to see who out of Ferrari and McLaren finish ahead and in the drivers who, who finishes ahead. And to add to what you've um, mentioned there, Ed and LA, um, even cycle rivals can get on well as pals. I mean, I remember when I produced the 1962 championship winning year for BRM, the cycle rivals, Graham Hill and Jim Clark, despite pushing each other as hard as they could with the cars as brittle and fragile as they were, even though Jim Clark lost the championship um, thanks to an engine problem, he took it very well and had a nice cold drink with Graham Hill, the guy who won the championship, and got on the plane home together and sat, you know, next to each other on the same row, on the same plane. So no love lost between those two, and that was that was a that was a good thing. Although it was more of a gentleman sport rather than commercial side of sport, if you know what I mean. But it was still very nice, very um, very touching at the time. Um, Will um, did strategy play a role in, in its race and? You know, did you think Max could have pitted late had it been, you know, with the stint that he was on, 27 laps it was overall? Um, well, I mean, you'd be a fool not to realise that strategy was a key factor in that race. I don't think it was entirely um, that it was strategy. I think, obviously, you couldn't give uh, that strategy to, um, just trying to think, Rio Harianto um, in a Red Bull and he'd be able to carry out. It does require skill to um, to carry through a strategy. I think people need to um, to recognise this rather than putting it all on one factor. In my personal opinion, uh, like Ed said, wouldn't have mattered. Uh, Verstappen still would have won even if he did um, pit later. But in all honesty, uh, I get the feeling and uh, Anyone can challenge me if they want to. It's it's my opinion. Uh, everyone has one, unfortunately, for some. Um, it, I think Red Bull knew what they were doing from the very beginning. I think before that race, they knew, right, looking at the past, I, I noticed it, 2018 and 2017. Uh, Vettel and Raikkonen took the from Hamilton in the opening laps. And that race was then decided by strategy 2017, especially because Hamilton used the pit stops to get past Vettel. Um, when I look at it, I think Red Bull knew that Hamilton would get past them. Uh, and then they planned that strategy, even if they didn't, as soon as they, they would have planned for it. They used Perez to their advantage. They used Verstappen to their advantage. They had control of that race. No matter what you believe, uh, people saying, oh, Hamilton Hamilton was closing down on, on Verstappen during that second stint. But if Hamilton caught Verstappen, all Verstappen needed to do was come back into the pits, strap on a fresh set of tyres, and Hamilton would have to do it all over again. Uh, and plus, if you look at the final stint, you'll notice that Perez was setting fastest laps. Not Verstappen, Perez. Perez was going faster than Verstappen at that point in time. That is because Verstappen was trying to save his tyres. And because he knew that the final three laps, the final six laps, it would come down to that point. He wanted better tyres. And rather than just go for the, the all-out, I'm going to push my tyres to the point of no return, build up a massive gap to Hamilton, then he's going to slice through it at the end. He realised that it would be the final laps of the race, not the middle stint be the final laps of the race where Hamilton came in. Otherwise, he didn't have to worry about it. No, of course not. And, you know, strategy does play a role in, in Formula One, whether it's in a one-stop race or a two-stop race or even a three-stop race, or not even to mention a four-stop race. I mean, remember Magny called 2004, Ed, 
Michael Schumacher's yes. four-stop strategy that helps him win the French Grand Prix. Of course, and free stoppers as well. Schumacher and Ferrari were the masters of the of the free stop four-stop strategy. Um, although, you know, it was Manu Core. It's a pretty easy track to, to pass. That's not. Um, although you'd have the nice, you'd have the, the occasional range out, but yes, you, you do have those long free four-stop strategies working. This is why I miss refueling. I, I, I miss it for the strategy of it. I miss it for the, do we fill the tank and get as many laps as we can slower and pick it up at the end? Or do we go light, get ahead as much as we can? You know, I, I, I absolutely miss refueling for that reason. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't mind refueling coming back just as long as it has a beneficial effect on the racing. Because sometimes you don't want racing to be too predictable. Some, because the thing is, a car that's on 20 laps of fuel comparison to a car that's on four or five laps of fuel, sometimes the overtaking can end up being too predictable, especially on fast straights. You know, if we saw it in Austin, for instance, especially now we've got DRS. I mean, I'm, we've never had a Formula One race with DRS and refueling at the same time. It's always been a full tank of fuel at the beginning and then reducing the, uh, uh, the fuel load all the way until the end. But I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't mind refueling coming back just as long as it has, you know, an extra, adds an extra element to the racing that's there rather than taking an element away from the racing that's already there. I don't, I don't think we will because obviously we're probably heading into a, a pure electric era with Formula One at some point. So I don't think that would ever come back. But it's just a personal wish just yeah. for strategy and for interest during some of the most boring can make some of the most boring circuits or boring races quite interesting sorry yeah. Will, go ahead so i uh, know it's, it's just a thought that, that's popped into my head um especially with modern f1 obviously being so revolved around tire wear um every before the weekend pirelli published the exact number of tires which teams are going to be taking to the races the exact number of sets the the uh, the tire compositions that they're going to be taking why not just make it so teams do not know what the other teams are taking? It would be that simple to try and get Formula One back into this into this level. Uh, well, we know that uh, the Mercedes have got an extra set of mediums, so we're going to have to worry about that. No, you don't know what the other teams have got. You think, oh, we've got this in a bag, medium to hard stint. And then for all we know, Mercedes comes out, does a double medium stint and then stops at the end. They're faster. Bam, done. Strategy. It, it's just as simple as that. You don't need to know. The fans, although people will be saying, oh, yeah, but the fans want to know what's going on. No. It, from my opinion, if I could know the exact number of tyres and the exact percentage of the tyre wear, or, oh, what's happening? This is going to be thrilling. I know which one I'm choosing. And it's frankly, Formula One AWS, it's moving to something, oh, we need all the information. No, you don't. That is not what sport is. Sport is about tension. It's not about constant lap-to-lap battling not about knowing what is going on all the time. It's about tension. And that's what I think needs to be recognised by this sport. Can I chime in on both issues? So refuelling. Um, I wouldn't mind it being brought back, but is it needed? Um, you know, it's also another cost that the teams probably don't need. And then there's always the risk of a fire. I like Jost Verstappen and Hockenheim 1994. We don't really need that, if I'm being honest with you. As for the will suggestion, I think it's, a, it's a, an idea. Um, although personally I'd like to see two tyre companies in Formula 1 then we can get to see how these teams cover each other but unfortunately there doesn't seem really to be a need for two tyre companies Pirelli seem very comfortable in being the sole supplier and 
yes, that's good for the sport and it's good for continuity, but I'd like to see a Bridgestone, maybe a Firestone even, Bridgestone-Firestone coming over. But again, both issues, I don't think, both ideas um, are probably quite unlikely, I'm afraid. Um, what, what I would like to see in terms of pit stops is maybe bring back the lollipop man or the lollipop person. Uh, so instead of the light system, it may make stops a little slower, but it's it's very, it's it makes stops a little bit safer, I would say. And even when you get a stop done in like four to five seconds, it's still safe enough, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, back in the days of, um, you know, let's just use 1987, for instance. I remember there was a pit stop for Gerhard Berger for Ferrari at Suzuka. He managed to complete it in just under seven seconds, which back then was a phenomenally quick pit stop. And that's just tyres changing. So that's that tells you something about how Formula One has evolved, especially with the technology. So... Um, if it was going to real extremes here and have their reserve drivers, you know, they used to switch drivers. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that's, that sounds like WEC. Sorry, no, no LA. That's that's an idea too far. To be fair, they, some teams used to do that back in the 50s. I think, was it uh, Jose Frollin, Gonzalez, and Tuomo Fangio swapped? Yeah, yeah, and Peter Collins, I think I did. But that 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 idea is for an all-star event or something. It's, yeah, know, maybe not, so. Let's stick in the 50s and let's just keep it there permanently. Yeah, <laughs> let's leave the history alone and not, um, not, let's not try and bring it into 2021 because yeah, quite frankly, it just wouldn't work. Cars are different. Um, let's talk about Yuki Tsunoda because it was a fairly decent weekend. He did the best he could. He was a long way behind Lando Norris, it has to be said, but the Alvatore is not anywhere near as, well, I say not anywhere near as quick. It just wasn't as quick as, you know, McLaren or Ferrari. But ninth place, um, LA for... Yuki Tsunoda. Um, it may not feel like a fantastic result, you know, in comparison to previous results he's had, but that result or the performance warrants a better result than ninth. Uh, you know, he's, he's doing great, really, isn't he? I mean, I think he's got his critics, and um, I think that he's. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, we watched him in Formula 2 and there's, there's that one particular race and, and Ed will be able to say which one it is uh, when he couldn't, he didn't have his radio comms and the pit wall were gone. Styria. Styria. And they were trying to get his attention <laughs> and he was just going bang, bang. <laughs> I that every lap. I was like, come in, you, you need to come in, you need to come in. And he wasn't. Um, and that just typifies who he is and what kind of driver he is. He's on a mission and that's it. Um, and I, I, I think that what also typifies him is the basketball thing that they just did as well um, over the Austin weekend and then if you watch him compared to some of the others and he throws his ball and the ball isn't quite going into the net and he's like really leaning and I've, I've just done a post uh, basically on social media regarding his leaning trying to influence you know power of the mind you influence that ball into that net and that's kind of how I think he probably thinks in the car you know and um he I think he's amazing to be getting points it's his first season he's a rookie he's keeping it on the track he's not spinning he's not going off he's not hitting teammates he's he's finishing in top tens he's qualifying not too shabby the, the guy needs a massive pat on the back and he deserves I think a little bit more accreditation than, than what he's getting from some you know people that think he's still a little bit of a, a I don't know what word to use. It sounds derogatory and horrible, but I don't know. I think some people need to think he needs to calm down, but not every driver does. He's just going, he's just racing. 
you know, but yeah, I mean, what he's, he's finished ninth. He did finish quite a little bit, didn't he, behind Norris? There's no way he'd ever overtake Lando anyway, unless not Lando had some kind of mechanical issue. Uh, but it, I, I mean, he qualified, you know, right behind his teammate Pierre. And and at the end of the day, that's all teams want. You know, if if the cars are pretty much equally matched, then they just want their teammates to qualify together. So he's doing his job. He's doing his job for the team and he finished a race and he's got points. So well done, Yuki. I love you. We miss you in F2. I'm, I'm sure the insider, I'm sure the inside F2 team, as well as all the, the whole of like Formula 2 and some of the team personnel and all the Formula 2 teams are uh, are uh, are missing him. But he's got bigger things to concentrate on at least Formula 1. And who knows, maybe with the Grand Effect machines in 2022, if you could even do even better. We'll have to wait and see. Um, Will, your take on Yuki Sonoda's performance, because I think you have to say over the course of the weekend, it was one of his best. Uh, I think it was his best, personally. I think he did a really good job, managed to stay ahead of Valtteri Bottas, uh, defend for, for quite a, some time. Obviously, Bottas would inevitably get past him eventually because, well, he's, he's in a Mercedes, for, for goodness sake. But he, he did a really good job this weekend, in my opinion. Uh, fought with some of the best Raikkonen and Alonso. Um, Russell at one point, I think, was was behind him. Um, unfortunately, I wouldn't go... I I can understand where LA's coming from because he has been really impressive this season in terms of being a rookie. He's been the best rookie this season. I wouldn't say he deserves a pat on the back. Um, I think a handshake, um, like, okay, good job. Um, you st he still needs a lot of improvement to justify why he's in that seat especially Formula 2, the likes of Liam Lawson um, and uh, Yuri Vips as well, both of them sort of charging for, for Formula 1 seats in the next few years. So I think, uh, although he did um, quite a good race in Texas, um, there are other races you can certainly look at uh, and think that he needs uh, a bit more improvement. But uh, I think uh, the real takeaway of the season is the fact that Alex Albon might want to uh, consider a career in driver coaching rather than... Um, rather than actual driving because he's been uh, positioned with Sonoda uh, over the last few weeks uh, in order to try and sort of give him a bit more confidence in the car, um, sort of try and aid him to make sure that he's improving a bit. As soon as Alex Albon does this, Sonoda, impressive uh, performance in Turkey and a points finish in Austin. So really good job by him, but there's a way to go. And I think he can use the final five races to prove that he deserves that Alphatari seat. And who knows, you know, depending on the pace that the Alphatari has in the remaining races, we could well see more of the Sonoda that we've been after um, in what's been a rather mixed season, I have to say. Because remember in the first race in Bahrain, he was fantastic. You know, he could have scored more points in that one and then just haven't quite been on the same form in numerous races. And then he obviously had a good finish in, um, in Baku, I remember, and Hungary as well. That's where he's got a lot of his points from. But Austin was no doubt um, one of the performances of the season in terms of merit. So very well done to Yuki Snowdo on getting nine points and getting nine, nine point, two points for finishing ninth, um, which has helped AlphaTauri close in on Alpine in the Constructors' Championship in the fight for fifth. Um, Ed, your thoughts on Sonoda? Um, a good a good couple of points. It may not feel like a, a, a big haul of points, but it's, it could really come crucial come Abu Dhabi in December. Very much so. Um, AlphaTauri is still in that fight for sixth place in the Constructors' Championship, and Sonoda's two points are going to be vital, considering Gasly didn't finish. It was a very good drive. I don't think we should start, you know, jumping up and down saying, oh, you know, you know, Yuki's this. He did a good job, and he deserves a lot of praise for that. But he needs to start keeping this run going. 
the trouble is with Snow at times this year, it's been a bit of a flash. He has one good weekend and then the next two are not so good. But for me now, ever since Turkey, he's starting to build some level of consistency. He did a fantastic job in holding up Hamilton uh, for a good chunk of the race before he sadly spun off. And this was a good result for him. And he should be very happy with himself that he seems to be getting the confidence uh, that we all thought he had in Bahrain. But you know, at times he was sadly lacking a little bit. So, yeah, good job from, from Yuki. Let's see if he can build this up, build this momentum into Mexico and Brazil. And he needs to keep that into 2022 because with Lawson in F2, uh, Vips in F2, Deruva in F2, and with Jack Dillon and Dennis Howard expected to come up, there's five Red Bull juniors fighting with Sonoda for that, that second alpha Tari seat. It's really sink or swim. And so far, Sonoda is swimming with the tide. Um, but again, needs to keep it up. He needs to keep it up indeed. My last point before we bring the show to a close um, is the Mexico City Grand Prix um, in less than two weeks. It's known as the Mexico City Grand Prix, not the Mexican Grand Prix, just for your information. Uh, round 18 of 22. Um, Ed, your take going into the weekend, I know it's still some time away yet, but in terms of the championship at the moment, 12 points is the gap between Max and Lewis um, on a track where Red Bull have done very well at in previous years. You have to say, this is a race where Mercedes have got to throw everything at it. They've got to throw the kitchen sink and the whole caravan at winning this race because this is a very pro Red Bull circuit. And if they don't get a result here, then I don't know where else they can get it. Red Bull have done well here in the past three, two out, past two out of three renewals of this race. This is really an open goal for Red Bull and they just need to kick it. Uh, whether that be Perez or Verstappen doing the honours. If Mercedes are, if Mercedes don't get pole on Saturday, I think we can count out all chance of winning on Sunday, unless we have the reverse of what we saw this weekend in Austin. So it's win or bust for Mercedes, for Red Bull. They don't have that much pressure. They can just keep extending it, uh, keep extending the championship lead little by little in the drivers, and they can start chipping away at Mercedes and the constructors. So I don't think Red Bull will be going into this weekend with that much pressure, whilst Mercedes have got it all to do. It is effectively win or bust. Yeah. Well, um, the other drama, Hermanos Rodriguez, of course, coming back after a year's absence. You have to say with Mercedes, you know, Lewis won the last race in 2019, um, thanks to some brilliant strategy work, which Mercedes were, out, were able to outmaneuver Ferrari, um, like they did on a number of occasions that season. You have to say, you know, I don't know what it's going to be for them. It could be pretty much go, it could pretty much go either way for them, couldn't it? Um, I think uh, what I just said about um, Mercedes, even if they, uh, if, if they get pole, uh, if they, sorry, if they don't get pole, um, then that's all uh, their chance is gone. But even if they do get pole, it's, I think it's the longest run down to turn one uh, in Mexico. It's the battling that we see on that main straight at the beginning of the race is absolutely incredible. Uh, before they settle down through the next few sectors. Um, so I think it, well, to sum it up, uh, sorry to, uh, to quote you here, Ed, but it, it's an open goal for Red Bull um, because it's, I'm, it, I genuinely do not see them throwing this one away. They've had the pace in the last, uh, last three events here. Uh, and even in 2016, they were fighting for the, uh, the final step of the podium. And that was back when Mercedes was properly dominant, back when Mercedes was at their best. Uh, you have to say, in some cases, Rosberg versus Hamilton. Um, 
and I genuinely believe that the next two races is going to be damage limitation for Mercedes. And I, I can see Hamilton um, taking a penalty uh, this this race because of the reliability concerns. And who knows, Bottas, six, maybe seven uh, next race, possibly eight after Brazil. We just don't know, to be honest. As long as those um, those engines keep on going the way they're going, Mercedes stands in no way at this title. That's another interesting thing, LA, is engine penalties, um, which we've seen ever so regularly, considering that we are now coming towards the end of the season where more and more drivers are having to take uh, grid drops because of uh, change of ICEs or MGUKs or MGUHs, you name them all. Um, is, that, is that what is going to be on Mercedes' mind, taking grid penalties on a track which they don't do as well as Rebel do? I don't know. It's not, it's not just that easy that those the decisions for uh, engine changes don't just come about because you don't think you're going to do well at a particular race or as good as your, your rival team um there's all sorts of other factors as well that come into um an engine change over a weekend and if you also can change your components too so i can't even begin to go into that kind of territory i'm not privy to that kind of information or influence um but uh i think from from our point of view sitting here um it makes sense to do that doesn't it you know, but it, it also made sense for Lance Stroll to take his engine penalty this this uh, Austin weekend from from where he qualified. But again, for other reasons that we're not privy to, that didn't happen. Um, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? But I I don't know. I I don't want to take it. You, you know, we've already said this in this podcast. Bottas and well, we haven't mentioned Bottas, but Perez hasn't always been. You know that the the wingman for Verstappen, even though we're expecting him to do better next race because he it's his home Grand Prix. Nothing to say that he will though. Nothing to say that some issue might not happen in qualifying. You know, and someone might get in his way. He might be a busy track. Who knows. Um, I do like the prospect of, you know, the long run um, you know, down to the first corner. That's always very exciting, isn't it? Because that Mercedes looks pretty handy on the race start in Austin. So if they've got that kind of a race start in them, then who knows who could who could go into the first turn. Um, but I, I can see a couple more clashes coming this season between Max and Lewis. Um, I can see their... Bottas and Perez not always having their back and not always being up there with them and then that means somebody else influencing and perhaps having a good start and of course we keep talking about the strategy as well and engine penalties as well so it, it does kind of look like you know I think what you said earlier and I've managed to sort of think about it during the podcast you know is this Max's um, championship to lose then I suppose I'll, I'll maybe change the answer I was giving and say yes it is his to lose because he's in the lead and he's got all the advantages at the moment and depending on what happens next race if Max wins next race then I do I kind of feel at that point that that will be the championship going his way you know we all know is it something like lap 14 uh, when the undercut was made in the Austin race um, the, the race was pretty much lost then for Mercedes. So will Mercedes go into Mexico with a with a strategy to win the race? Um, or will they hopeful, hope, be hopeful on Lewis's pure talent to do it? Because we all kind of know that when the chips are down, uh, the reason why he's seven-time world champion is because he, he can also 
pull something extra out of the bag when he needs to and when it's necessary. And, and he's the guy that can do it. And that's why he's so successful. So that'll also be good to see, won't it? Yeah, most certainly. And of course, there's that long drag down to home one. They just cost two DRS zones. No, sorry, three DRS zones um, on the Autodrom Hermans Rodriguez. So there's that to um, consider. And with it being a 71 lap race on a track that is abrasive as well, I'd expect there to be a two stop. I would expect it to be a two stop race as well for, uh, for the Mexico City Grand Prix. Whoever wins, I want to see that car coming up again on the podium and all the smoke and all the, you know, all that. That, that was amazing, wasn't it? I, I, I hope they do it again. And imagine if it was Sergio Perez that won it. That would be, be, it would bring tears to a lot of Mexican people's eyes. And maybe Sergio Perez fans all over, all around the world as well. So who knows? But, um, but yeah, Mexico City definitely puts on a great show for Formula One. And especially designing in, in terms of organising the race to suit the modern day world of Formula One is fantastic. So that's something to look forward to more uh, to discuss on that um, in next week's show. We'll bring the show to an end, guys. Thank you to everyone involved this evening and of course, listen to the podcast next week. Ed will be back with me along with Jordan Haynes and Jack Berry to preview the Mexico City Grand Prix, the next round of the Formula One World Championship. From Ed, Will, LA and all of us at Motorsport Week, enjoy the racing this weekend and it's goodbye. <laughs>